Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Well, this morning, we have come to the last message in our summer sermon series that we've been calling More to the Story, Bible Stories You Thought You Knew. And all summer, we've been looking at these incredible stories from the Bible and looking for details and meaning that perhaps we had missed or overlooked in our previous exposure. And every week, trying to show how every story, all of them, were intended to point us to Jesus, to the hope that we have in him for life today. And so we've looked at Noah's Ark and the crossing of the Red Sea, Joseph and his dysfunctional family. We've looked at David and Goliath, and last week we looked at Daniel and the lion's den. And so if you're interested in any of those or other stories that we covered over the summer, you can, you can catch those on our YouTube channel, PCTRNJ, or wherever you get podcasts. Many of you are probably aware that last week my family and I were away on vacation. We had gone up to New Hampshire for a couple of days and then over to Maine. And I am happy to say that all six of us on the road together for nine days, all six of us did in fact return. (laughs) So that's that's good. No, it was a great trip. It was was tiring at at times because we camped for part of that and that's a lot of work, but it really was a great time together. And on one of the last days of the trip, Abby, my wife, and our oldest son, Wesley, and I decided to go on a bike ride. And so I found through one of these bike trail apps a a mountain biking trail. And so we headed out and we got just outside of town, which was already a little town in the middle of Maine. And eventually the road turned into a dirt road and we continued on the dirt road for 15 or 20 minutes. And then we took a left onto another road, which was no longer a dirt road. It was more like a, a mud road and it had gotten narrower and somewhat overgrown. And we had to stop at different points because we were concerned that the pothole might actually swallow the truck as it was full of water. And, you know, we kept avoiding rocks and finally got to the parking lot at the trail that we were looking for. We jumped onto our bikes and there was a, a little access road that continued on to where the trailhead itself actually began. I've actually got a picture of that little access road for you. So this is the road that we started riding on. And it hadn't rained for a few days. And yet you can see there is plenty of water still on the road. There was actually frogs jumping in and out of the puddles. They were having a great time. And we continued up this road until we came to what was like a little pond. That's probably not even fair. It was more like just a, a swollen creek. And we couldn't really figure out which way to go. And so we're trying to figure it out. Nothing seemed to make sense. There was no real good break in the tree line even. And so eventually Wesley, my son, starts to go the only direction that it seemed like it made any sense you could possibly go. But as he kept going, the water kept getting deeper and deeper. And it was like, yeah, this is clearly not the way to go. So I finally pull out the GPS that we were trying to follow and realize we have missed the trail completely. (laughs) 
And so we turn back and we go back about a quarter of a mile and there we finally see, yes, you can see on the side of this, there was just this narrow opening in all of the brush and the bushes. And sure enough, there was the trail leading off into the woods and up the side of this mountain. We had missed the trail because the road that we were on was just so right in our face. It was easy to see. It was familiar to us. We've ridden on roads like this before and yet... We missed the point, didn't we? Because the point wasn't to ride this road, it was to ride the trail. Now, to finish the story, I'll just say there wasn't a whole lot of riding, if I'm honest about it, because that trail that led right into the woods also led straight up the ridge. And so over the next seven-tenths or so of a mile, it was a 500-foot vertical incline and, and so, and actually, it was so steep and so rocky that most of the time we had to get off and we were basically hiking, dragging our bikes through the woods. <laughs> and as we're going up the sections of 35% grade, no kidding, there were some comments coming from my family members about my choice of trails, <laughs> as you can imagine. <laughs> But we missed the trail because we were so focused on the road that was familiar to us. And in the same way, we can miss the whole point of today's story if we only focus on the part that's familiar to us, the part that's easy to see, the part that's well-known. And this story is Jonah and the whale. And so we're going to jump in and try to make sure or do the best we can to not miss the point of the story. But just as some background to the scripture, Jonah was a prophet, and God had told him that he should go up to Nineveh, this great city, preach against it, because the wickedness, their wickedness had come to God, and, and really, Jonah didn't want anything to do with this command. In fact, he runs the complete opposite direction. Nineveh was about 550 miles north and east of Joppa, where Jonah lived, and he decided to head toward Tarshish, which was 2,500 miles west. So he jumps on this ship headed for Tarshish. But see, God still intends for Jonah to go to Nineveh. And so God sends this incredible storm on the ship. The wind became so violent, the waves so huge that it was threatening to capsize the ship. And the sailors were terrified and they were trying everything that they knew how to, to do what they could to make sure the ship doesn't go over. And, and it's not working. And so eventually they start crying out to their gods and they start you know, trying to figure out how can they get out of this. And they realize eventually that this is all Jonah's fault. And they ask him, what did you do? And Jonah confesses. He confesses that he was running not just in the opposite direction, but that he was running from the Lord. And when we read this story of Jonah, that's really an important detail to never forget. Jonah was running from the Lord. And have you ever run from the Lord? I know I have. Maybe, maybe God had something that he wanted you to do, but you weren't really interested in doing that, or you were just so afraid of what that might require of you. Maybe God had something that he wanted you to change in your life. It was going to be great. It was going to be good for you. It was the best for you. But really, no, you didn't want to have to go through the cost of what that was going to require. Or maybe he had someone that he wanted you to move toward and mend a broken relationship, but you still weren't over your own anger, your own hurt, your own bitterness, and so you didn't want to go toward 
that person. And it's not just a matter of running away from the thing or the situation. Jonah wasn't just running from a place. He was running from the person. He was running from God himself. And as we run from the Lord, we run from his lordship. We run from his authority. We run from his place in our life, his role as God. And we decide that we're going to be God. And so Jonah was running and acknowledges it. And the sailors are like, what should we do? He's like, just throw me in the sea. It's the only way. Well, they're really interested in having Jonah's blood on their hands. And so they try one last time valiantly to row the ship toward the shore. And they just realize it's impossible. And so finally, reluctantly, they throw Jonah overboard. And as soon as they do, the wind and the sea goes calm. All is quiet. And at the very end of chapter 1, the very last verse, it says this. The Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. (laughs) I just love, it's just so matter of fact. Oh yeah, the Lord provided a fish, and Jonah was swallowed, and he was in there for three days and three nights. (laughs) But he wasn't just in the fish. When you go into chapter 2, we find that he was praying. He was calling out to the Lord. He was confessing. He was recommitting his life to the Lord, saying, yes, I will, I will keep the vows that I've made to serve you, to sacrifice for you. And so then you get to the end of chapter 2, and you have this very clear, clear, straightforward picture. The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. Now, there's a picture And maybe you've heard this story before. Maybe you've read it in detail. Maybe you just are familiar with it. And maybe you're still thinking now, come on. This is ridiculous. I mean, I've seen Pinocchio. It doesn't work out well. And you might be wondering, man, is this even possible? I know lots of people have tried to figure out if it's possible. And maybe you came across a story as a friend of mine shared with me from last June story that came out of Cape Cod of a guy named Michael Packard who was eaten by a humpback whale. And he was inside the whale for all of 45 seconds before the whale spit him back out. And he survived, but he was injured in the process. There were witnesses there to verify the whole story. So it happened. He survived, but 45 seconds is a whole lot different than three days and three nights, isn't it? And if you keep digging, you might find the story from 1891 that was printed in newspapers in England and then across America of a guy named James Bartley, who was an English sailor, and he was on a whaling vessel, and they came across this huge sperm whale. And, you know, they, they said, hey, this is an incredible score, and so they go after the whale, and in the process, the whale isn't so thrilled, as you can imagine, and so he bumps the ship, knocks two sailors overboard, and one of them being James Bartley. Well... They keep after this whale, eventually catching him, and they begin to process it and harvest all the fat that they're going to use for the products that are needed in the late 1800s. And they get finally so far in that they get to the stomach, and they realize something's thrashing around in the stomach. And so they cut the stomach open, and then out pops James Bartley, 36 hours later, alive. But man, it was rough. His skin was bleached by the gastric juices of the stomach. He lost his sight completely. And and really, there's still some doubt as to whether the story really happened. But some have pointed to this story and some other stories as you keep digging through history as a proof, as a verification that the story of Jonah is possible. 
And, and I guess these stories open the door, but maybe they're not exactly definitive proof because Jonah just pops out and walks away kind of unscathed. But see, this fixation on the fish misses the point of the story. But we can't help but to fixate on it. It's the part we're most familiar with. It's the part we wonder the most about. But it misses the entire point. And so let's jump in to Jonah chapter 3 and see if we can get our eyes and hearts focused on the point of the story. This is starting in chapter 3, verse 1. If you want, you can follow along on the screen. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in a love, a God who relents from sending calamity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We need your word. We need you to speak into our lives. May you bless us to hear, to receive, and may your word continue to work within us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So for a second time, God says to Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach. See, this is the point of the story, that we focus on the fish and God is focused on lost people. Right? We focus on trying to understand the things that defy our understanding, and God wants to do something that will even more offend our sensibilities. See, Nineveh was, was a great city, we're told. It was a large city, but it wasn't just large, though we're told that there were 120,000 people there in chapter 4. It was an influential city. You know, it, it defined and shaped the culture of the world. It was kind of like a, a, a modern New York City or London or Paris or Hong Kong. The world would look at Nineveh as an example of what life could be like, what life should be like, perhaps. The problem is that in chapter 4, God tells us that, yeah, there's 120,000 people there, but these people can't tell their left hand from their right. In other words, 
For them, up is down and down is up. Good is bad, bad is good, right is wrong, wrong is right. Everything's all twisted for them. There's no guiding principles. There's no overarching ethics or morality that they build their lives on. They're completely lost. I mean, just think about it. If you don't know your left from your right, this is how you really get lost on a trail. This is how you really go the wrong direction. And I won't tell you more stories, though there are some, because we may have missed another trail or two. I'm wondering, though, does this sound familiar? Or does this just sound like some ancient city in some far-off place? Or does this sound anything like the world we live in today? A world that says, you know, don't worry about absolutes. Whatever is your truth, live it. Don't worry about ultimate principles. Just do what feels good and feels right as long as you're not hurting anybody else. And if it sounds familiar, how do you feel about that? I think the reality is some feel great about it. Like, yes, exactly. That's how I want to live. I don't want anyone or any principles telling me how to live. I want to do what I want to do. I want to do what feels good and is going to make me happy. And God might be saying to those of us feeling that way, hey, yeah, but this isn't working. You don't know you're left from your right. You're lost and you don't even know how lost you are. So stop running from me. Stop running from the way of life that I have for you. There's some things I want to change, and it's going to be good for you. But maybe you're not ready to give those things up. And others might be feeling, as we look at this world we're living in, like, yes, exactly, this is the problem. There are no morals. There are no ethical principles. There are no absolutes, no foundations. The world is a mess. Now, how do you feel about it? More specifically, how do you feel about the people that are living this way? Maybe push further. What are you saying about those people? Maybe particularly in those private moments when you're with like-minded people who also believe that the world is going to some place in some sort of basket. What are you saying? When I'm honest, I think the words that are coming out of me are often critical Judgmental, dismissive of people. You know, and this is Jonah's reaction. You know, we're told he's angry. And he's angry because he feels morally superior to the Ninevites. He doesn't feel like they're worthy. He feels like they are what is wrong with the world. And really, frankly, the world would be a better place, God, if you would just do what you've threatened to do and wipe them out then life could get on with the way it's supposed to be. And I know we don't say that out loud. I mean, that would be awful, and we're too nice of people. But is it right on the edge of what our heart is actually feeling and maybe we're expressing in private? That, man, God, if you could just get rid of them, then, man, the problems really would go away. But there's, this is a, such a slippery slope from being thoughtful and critical of the ideas and the principles that people are living by and then the people themselves. It's such a slippery slope from saying, you know what, that's really not God's best for you and you're terrible. And our hearts give in to this very slippery slope so easily. And that's Jonah's reaction to the Ninevites. But God's reaction is so different, isn't it? It's different than Jonah's and different 
than ours. You know, and actually, Jonah knew how God would react in the first place. That's actually why he ran to Tarshish. He told God, isn't this what I told you when I was at home? I didn't want to go because I know that you are gracious and compassionate. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in love. You relent from sending calamity, and calamity is deserved for some people, especially them. And so we focus on the fish, but God is focused on these lost people. We focus on the fish, I think, and other things, other details, other issues in our lives because those issues allow us to kind of dismiss those people, dismiss any responsibility of being a part of God's plan to reach them because when we can feel superior to somebody, then we can look down on them and really it's their fault that they're in the mess that they're in anyway. But see, the fish was just a tool, just a tool to save Jonah So that Jonah would then go and he would give the message that God intended to the lost people of Nineveh. And and Jonah goes, doesn't he? And he goes and he walks a day into this huge city and then he's got to give what is maybe the worst sermon in human history. Did you catch it? Here it is. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Period. Drop mic. I'm out of here. I'm going to try that sermon next week. Come on. Come back. It'll be great. There's no invitation to change. There's no appeal to the character of God, either his just character or his merciful, gracious character. There's nothing. It's the, probably the worst and most bitter sermon ever given and yet had one of the most amazing responses probably in history because the people responded in mass. The people began, they, they started to fast. They put on sackcloth. These were, these were images of their humility, of their recognition, of their desperation and their repentance. And the message spreads. It goes viral before viral was a thing, right? The the king even hears this message. And he issues a formal proclamation. His decree is that, no, everybody and every animal is going to fast. And we're going to put on sackcloth. We're going to call on God. We're going to turn away from our evil ways and our violence. Implied in that is, yeah, we know it's evil. We know it's violent. We know it's not the way that we're supposed to be living, and yet we've been doing it. We know it's not working. Let's turn away from that and move towards God. But the most amazing part, perhaps, about this official decree is this. It said in verse 9, Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger and not destroy us. Now, there's a statement of confidence from a leader. Who knows? He has no idea. He doesn't know. He knows the mess that they've made, but he has no idea how God is going to respond. And he's not approaching God with some formula that he's expecting will somehow force God to have mercy upon them, that will somehow put God in a position of of having to say, well, okay, you've made some, some bad mistakes in the past, but I guess you're more good than bad, so I'll let you off the hook. He's saying, who knows? We could do all of this, and we could still get squished. But he also says, who knows? Maybe this God will relent. And so in humility, 
he cries out to the Lord. And this who knows, I think, is so huge. Because who knows is so open-ended, but God's response closes that door and says, the who knows is on the other end is a God of compassion, a God of grace, a God who is abounding in love and mercy and is for people who are lost, who recognize their lostness and begin to turn back to him. And what this means is it's not too late. It's not too late for you. No matter what's happened in your past, no matter what is buried in your closet, no matter what's happening in the present, no matter what you have done, who you have been, who you've been with, it's not too late to turn back and to know that God is compassionate and gracious when we realize that, you know what, I've been living in a way that I've been deciding my own truth. But it also means it's not too late for the others in our lives. It's not too late for the others that you care so deeply about. Those that you, they keep digging the hole deeper and deeper and deeper and you have no idea if they're ever going to get out of the hole and you have tried everything in your power to get them out of the hole and yet you are in as just as impossible a situation as the sailors were on that ship. And it's still not too late for them. And we continue to pray for them and we continue to bring them before the Lord pleading for his grace to intervene. But it also means that it's not too late for the others in our lives that we see as the problem with the world. It's not too late for them either. See, we're so quick in our culture to write each other off, aren't we? I mean, it happens all the time. I mean, reality is, in relationships, relationships are hard, and so conflict comes up, and it's really just easier to just say, you know what? Forget you, I don't really need this hassle, this heartache, this, all of this stress. Just cut them off. And it's happening in our families. It's happening in our neighborhoods. It's happening in mass with the, the rise and embrace of, of cancel culture. Just write them off. Because <laughs> when we write them off, we get to just basically write them off as a bunch of idiots that we can ignore. And that as Jonah, essentially we've condemned them that the world would basically be better without them. But it's not too late. It's not too late for them. It's not too late for you. It's not too late for the others in our lives because God has proven to be gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love over and over again. But Jonah was angry and he was bitter about God's graciousness he didn't want to go with that message. He didn't want to go to extend grace. And there was going to be another one like Jonah that was going to come so many years later that was sent to seek and to save those who are lost. Jesus was sent to move toward the lost, to move toward those the world had written off, to move toward those that the religious, particularly religious leaders, felt superior to. Those who were moral failures and outcasts. Those who had no solid foundation upon their life. And he was sent with a message not of condemnation, of, hey, turn or burn. He was sent with a message of hope, a message of healing, a message of redemption, a message of forgiveness. He was sent with this message that, hey, it was, it's not based on your moral perfection and ability to live on the straight and narrow but it was based on the sign of Jonah is what it's called in Matthew 12 that we heard earlier. 
See, the people wanted a sign that what Jesus was proclaiming, this too-good-to-be-true message, was actually true, that they could really count on it. And Jesus said, I know you want a sign. You know the story of Jonah. You're familiar with that one, right? I know. You focus on the fish. So here's what you're going to get. You're going to get a sign of the fish. That just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days, three nights, then I, the Son of Man, am going to be buried not in the belly of a fish, but in the belly of the earth for three, day, three nights and three days. And this, that three days, three nights is, is actually a Hebrew idiom, and it's an expression that for us is really challenging because we read this, and maybe you've read this before when you've thought about the Easter story. Jesus says it's going to be three days and three nights, and yet Friday he was crucified, and Sunday he rose. Like, I don't really get that because that seems a lot like two, not three and part of that's because we look at it and we say three days, three, that's got to be three full 24-hour days. But this was an expression consistently over and over again in Scripture and outside sources that say, no, it's a period of time that begins on one day and ends on the day after the next. This is the first day. The middle day is the second day. The third day. It doesn't have to be full 24 hours, days, three days, three nights. And Jesus is saying, your hope that this is all going to work out is that I am going to die, be buried in the ground for three days, three nights, and I will rise again from the dead. Jonah came with a message of repentance for the Ninevites. Really, it was a message of condemnation, a message he didn't want to bring. Jesus comes with a whole nother message. And though Jonah was spared from the three days and three nights, his life was preserved in the belly of the whale. Jesus' life was given on that cross that he didn't want to go to either, and yet he submitted himself over and over and over again to the authority, the lordship, the grace of the God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for generations so that you and I could know that we are saved that we can know that even when we have chosen a path that's rooted on principles and foundations of our own making and not of his, that there is forgiveness. When we have chosen a path that allows us to feel superior morally, ethically, spiritually to other people, that we too, in our humility, can be forgiven and can be restored. But not just for our own sake, just as Jonah was not saved for his own sake. He was saved from the fish. The point wasn't the fish. The point was to go to the lost people of Nineveh. And that's your calling and my calling as well as you have experienced the grace of God through Jesus Christ is to go with that message of hope to a world that is living without a foundation, without absolutes, without principles, and it's not working. You have a unique message to bring. And I know we think of preaching as this event, this moment, in the midst of worship, and it's only for those who are theologically trained. Preaching simply means to proclaim, and you proclaim all sorts of things. You proclaim the sale that's happening. You proclaim your favorite restaurant. You proclaim the things that are important in your life to all sorts of people. And all this is is about proclaiming the place that God has in your life, what Jesus has done for you as the foundation for your hope, and inviting them to take a step towards him. And maybe the most practical step you can do is who can you invite to come to worship next weekend, to come to the block party? Who can you invite to come to the concert series the weekend after that? People who are wandering, lost, far from God. God's not focused on the fish. He's focused on the lost people. And he's inviting us to hear that point from this story to not get caught up on the fish, but to focus on the lost people that Jesus came to seek and to save. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope that we have through Jesus Christ.
We acknowledge that we've come up short. We acknowledge that we have felt superior. We've acknowledged that we've, we've dismissed people and, and condemned. We acknowledge our sinfulness and our need for your salvation. Lord, will you transform our hearts and our lives as we, as we look to the sign of Jonah? Your willingness, Jesus, to go to that cross, to be buried in the tomb, and the hope that we have because you rose again from the dead. Lord, may those realities become so clear to us as we celebrate at your communion table. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.